0: Revelation chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Amen. We thank God for his word. Trust that he'll help us to understand it as we come to look at it in a few moments' time.
1: Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 20, those verses that we read earlier. Revelation 20, verses 7 to 15, and uh, page 1248, if you've got a pew Bible. I don't know if you uh, noticed that a number of individuals and institutions made predictions for this year, 2020. It's almost inevitable, of course, that that happens, but either they tend to be so vague that those things are almost certain to come true. Or they are proved to be wrong. Because we know that one of the realities about being human, bound by space and time as we are, is that we cannot see the future. However, uh, tonight we are going to see the future. We're going to look at what God says is going to happen. And we should have no doubt that this is 100% uh, reliable and accurate. We started at Revelation, would you believe, about a year and a half ago, and uh, in the evenings. And we're getting to these closing chapters. One of the things that we've been saying is that many of the pictures in Revelation uh, that it gives us tell us about really what's happening now. That that that. Uh, we are seeing scenes that are replayed again and again that really tell us about the great battle that goes on uh, between the, the, the comings of Christ, between Christ uh, uh, ascended into heaven and his coming uh, again. In other words, we're often saying these are the days that we're living through. But it does take us beyond the present, of course, and these remaining chapters, our future, they focus on the end, on the time that is ahead of, ahead of us, Revelation 21 and 22 tell us about the new heavens and the new earth, which is the setting in which God will fully bless his people with his presence. But before we get to look at that, we're looking at the end of chapter 20, which tells us of the last judgment, because clearly not all will enjoy that final blessing with God. The first part of chapter 20, you might remember we looked at this uh, before Christmas, it tells us about the millennium, the thousand years. We read about it again in verse 7, and uh, it's a part that is controversial and disagreed over significantly, but the the more common approach, which we thought was the right approach, was saying that that that, that thousand-year Reign of Christ is again one of those pictures of Christ's reign now. He is sovereign over all things, and the work of Satan is being limited by him at this moment. He is in that sense, Satan is in that sense imprisoned. So that while there is persecution, we do live in a day of gospel opportunity within the world. But then we come to verse 7 and we read that the thousand years comes to an end, Satan is released. And we've said before that this seems to refer to a time of relative freedom that Satan will have just before the end. He is pictured here uh, stirring up a great battle against God's people so that it seems just before the end there will be a really, really difficult time for the church, uh, not just in certain places, but everywhere. So much so that the church almost seems, in other places in Revelation it suggests that the church almost seems to go under but then the end will come the devil will be thrown into hell symbolized by the lake of fire in verse 10 and there there he joins uh, the two beasts which stand for satanically inspired false religion and false ideology and that brings us to this last section of the chapter this <clears throat> scene of great judgment from verse 11 What do we see? Well, we're immediately introduced to a throne in verse 11. Christ is on the throne. It's a great white throne. It it speaks of his power and his purity. So, whenever we make judgments, uh, someone might well say to us, Who are you to judge me? Because you're far from perfect yourself. But we cannot say that to Jesus. He is someone who has the right to judge. He has the power to. He is perfect. So, he has the right to. This judgment, in fact, is really the only judgment that is truly fair, because uh, all judgments have uh, limited knowledge down here, but his judgment will be with full knowledge. He knows all things. He knows motives. Uh, uh, There may be protests, but there will be nothing to appeal for, because nothing will have been missed." We see that the earth and the sky flee from his presence. It's not saying that they are uh, no more, perhaps, but they are renewed, reconstituted into the new heavens and the new earth. We'll see something of that in the coming weeks. And then we see that there is this judgment. The dead are gathered before him, and you see that no one is missing. Those who are who have died at sea, whose bodies were never recovered, they too are there. The the sea has given them up. Those who are in death and Hades are given up. The point is that everyone who has ever lived or died is there. It reminds us, of course, that it is with Christ that we must deal. Those who say, well, it's up to each one to follow their path faithfully, whether that be a Christian path or an Islamic path or a Buddhist path. Uh, It's up to them to do that. But that's not what the Bible says. All come and stand before the Lord Jesus. There is one judge, one mediator between God and man. And all types of people are there, great and small, as verse 12 says. So no status will exempt you. You cannot send an apology. You cannot send a representative. All the distinctions that mean so much down here, great and small, will ultimately mean nothing on that day. We do well to remember that. Now, we maybe need to step back just a little bit and and ask that question, what happens when we die? Well, when we die... Whether a person goes to be with Christ or goes to hell, they still await this final day. So let, let's let's see this uh, with the catechism, the catechism that, that attempts to, and we're going to look at the confession later on as well. These two documents that our church uh, stands upon that says and says they sum up what the Bible teaches. So the catechism, in questions thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Tell us about this very helpfully. Thirty-seven. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in the graves, in their graves, till the resurrection. That's the resurrection is what we're reading off here. Verse thirty-eight. What benefits do believers or Question 38, what what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up to glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, being made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. So you see, when a believer dies, their soul, the essential them, goes to be with Jesus. Remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, their bodies go to the grave. Now, their bodies are not unimportant. Their bodies will be raised at the resurrection and transformed into bodies fit for eternity. Resurrection bodies. Jesus' resurrection body is a sort of a a model, a type for us uh, uh, for that. So, so in that period between our souls going to heaven and waiting for this general resurrection and final judgment… Well, this is sometimes called the intermediate state, this intermediate period where we wait for our resurrection bodies. And so, believers at the moment with Christ are, are waiting for, could we say, the fullness of their salvation. No, there's not anything perfect about their situation, but they're waiting for the fullness of their salvation for they've not yet received their resurrection bodies. So, King David… Is there now? Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, countless loved ones. We know they're waiting for the, the general resurrection which happens at the same time as this final judgment. And the awful opposite equivalent is true for unbelievers. They go to a place of torment but await this day of resurrection and judgment. So on this day then, when Christ returns and Satan is cast into the lake of fire and the judgment of all mankind takes place, everyone who has ever lived, will ever live, is gathered and believer and unbeliever are there. And it looks at that point as if the general resurrection has taken place. It's implied by the fact that they're standing before the throne. And you notice that there are books brought out and some of the books record deeds And then there's another book, the book of life. And what happens is that the dead, what we're told here, the dead are judged according to their deeds. And then if anyone's name is not in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is what the Bible has already told us. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, all these pictures of judgment, they're really just in revelation, aren't they? Well, let me give you a number of verses. They're they're on the screen. You'll probably not be able to read them, but I'll, I'll read them for you. Ecclesiastes 12 and 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Matthew 12. But I tell you, Jesus speaking, that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Acts chapter 17:31 for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed Romans 14:10 and 12 for we will all stand before God's judgment seat so then each of us will give an account of himself to God 2 Corinthians 5:10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body whether good or bad So we cannot just say, well, Revelation is picture language. The the, the consistent message of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, words of Jesus, letters of Paul, say that all will be judged by Jesus. He's the judge of all the earth. Now, some of us probably are thinking, well, hang on, I'm a Christian, and whenever I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, I thought that that meant no judgment for me. Well, Let's look at this a little bit more closely. The confession tells us that, that all people will be judged. This is what it says in chapter 33, uh, section 1. All persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So, how does that work for a believer who has no condemnation. What role does this judgment of our deeds play in our salvation? Well, historically, people have taken two approaches to this. Let me, let me give them to you. One of two things. It, it may be that it is to determine reward. The Bible suggests in other places, like 1 Corinthians 3, we'll eventually see that all being well in the mornings. It, it suggests that there are various degrees of reward in heaven. And if that's the case, it may be that the things that are spoken of here in in this judgment are are there to determine rewards for the believer. That's certainly a possibility. It may also be that this is evidence. So, so, So we know that when a person is saved by grace, they are saved to do good works, which God has prepared for advance in advance for us to do, Ephesians 2. And we know that that Jesus said the world would know Christians by their love for each other, that you could identify a tree by its fruit. In other words, genuine Christian faith, which is saving faith, is faith that produces fruit, good works. So remember at the Reformation, the whole place of works was very much debated, and it was sort of summarized by saying that the Reformers said that while you can't get into heaven by good works, you cannot get into heaven without them. You remember that? So Bruce Milne says in his book on heaven and hell that, that every deed has a history. What we do, he says, is the visible emergence of processes that reach back into our inner beings. They reveal, in other words, what we're really like. Has there really been heart change? And if that's in mind, then this judgment is about evidence. Now, those of us who are Christians with, with sensitive hearts are, are probably saying now, well, you know, there's so little in my life to show. What if there's not enough? Well, again, Bruce Millen says that, that believers in Christ should not despair at this prospect, because the, in the presence of Christ and, and, and with the presence of Christ in our lives, He cannot help but produce fruit. Sometimes we just see our, our, our failure. Sometimes the, the fruit that He produces is so uh, unobvious to us. And of course, our trust is never in our works. Our trust continues to be in what Christ has done for us. And even the, the fact that, that our sins that are revealed are revealed as forgiven sins. And so, all of these words that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus are absolutely the case. Now, ultimately, you see, that's where, our, what, that's where the second book comes in, the book of life. We've already seen it introduced to us in Revelation in chapter 3 verse 5 and chapter 13 verse 8 and chapter 17 verse 8. It's the Lamb's book of life. The names have been written in it from the creation of the world, as chapter 17 verse 8 says, long before we would any chance to do any works, because salvation is ultimately of the Lord. We know that any reckoning of our deeds will show us to have a lack of perfection, We know that. So how might we hope to stand in this judgment? Well, Revelation 3 verse 5 tells us that the Lamb acknowledges our names before the Father. He he pleads our case, and He pleads our case in a way that goes far beyond any favor asking. He died for those whose names are in this book. He has shed His blood for them so that their sins are already paid for. His, his perfect righteousness has become theirs, and so there is a welcome for them. Now, we're going to learn more about the, the destiny of the believer in the coming chapters in Revelation. It's wonderful. But this scene is not over, because then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Again, the Bible has promised this, that the last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. But also, though the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, we see here that those whose names are not written in the book of life are also thrown into the lake of fire. Having continued in their rebellion, they have no substitute to plead their case, no savior to acknowledge their name before the Father. And we might want to, to suggest that, that, like so much of Revelation, this image of the lake of fire is just that, an image. Indeed, we've referred to it as that. But, but it is an image that speaks of something absolutely awful, absolutely conscious, and absolutely unending. And some of the most fearful words about hell are not actually given by John here in Revelation, but by Jesus, who speaks of the the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched. So remember what we said at the beginning. We said that tonight we were going to see the future, that we were going to see something that will happen. The Bible leaves us in no doubt that there is a judgment, that there will be a judgment. As Paul said in Athens, God has set a day when he will judge the world. And if God has set a day, there will be no U-turns, there'll be no extensions. It is said. Here's Bruce Milne again. When all allowance is made for the accretions of metaphor and vividness of imagery, the portrayal of that event and its outcomes are literally overwhelming. We must each appear in the presence of uncreated holiness. We must stand naked and alone before the judge of all, who has given us our lives and called us to use them in all their parts and possibilities in his service. To fail in that judgment, as in ourselves we invariably must, is to face a destiny of awesome gravity. Hell is for real and portrayed in language that removes all doubt concerning its fearfulness quite simply, it is all that we do not want to experience. How might we avoid it? Well, only by fleeing to Christ, only by fleeing to the one who suffered hell for us. You remember, the, the words of the Apostles' Creed, speaking of Jesus, it says he descended to hell. You might remember that a number of years ago. We, we looked at that, and we, we said it was best not to understand this as saying that Christ literally went to hell after his death, but that in suffering d- death on the cross, he suffered the pains of hell, as if the Creed were to say Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and in all this he descended to hell. But he did that so that we might not. And friend, if you are here tonight and you know that were things to continue as they are at this moment, that this is where your path would take you, then surely you must see what you should do. You must flee to him who loves you so much that he should descend to hell for you. Very briefly tonight, really, as we sort of wrap up, there are three, I think, final and further sort of applications, sort of implications of all of this. And the first one is is mission. I've been struck, we we looked at Paul visiting Corinth this morning, and, and Paul's missionary zeal is so very evident, of course, and his particular zeal to see his fellow countrymen, the Jews, saved. And that that drives him. He may have uh, other particular convictions that lead him to do this, but it is driving him to go as he enters a new town to the the, the synagogue first. And, and, and of course, we find that that often he is rebuffed there and rebuked, and and the Jews... uh, stir up all sorts of violence against him and so on. But he continues to try to, to persuade them that the Jesus is the Christ before eventually perhaps going on to the Gentiles. And we wonder, what, what is it that, that motivates him in all of this? Well, part of it must be this. In Romans 9, he says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for those of my own race, the people of Israel. But he says that, for I wish that I myself were cut, cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I have great sorrow unceasing anguish in my heart. Unceasing anguish. What is it that causes him to use such language? You know, it's not the thought that, well, their life would be lovely if they knew Jesus. It's not the thought that they're not living their best life now. It is their lostness. It is their peril. And that moves Paul and burdens him. And it moves him to mission. And the question is, if if we believe this, and and friends, you know that, that we cannot cherry-pick the Bible. We cannot take the bits that are comfortable and set aside the bits that are uncomfortable. But believing this then as we do, we must ask ourselves, how does this move us and what does it motivate within us? Mission. And then endurance. So, the Westminster Confession again talks about this a little bit in in section 3 of chapter 33, it says this, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. Then it goes on. Let me pick up those two phrases. The second first, the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. You see, <clears throat> when when we are wronged, and this is, this is a word maybe, maybe even more for many of our brothers and sisters and in places where it's tremendously difficult to be a Christian. But let's apply it to ourselves. When, when we are wronged and ill-treated, especially for the sake of Christ, we do not give up. Because while we pray and long that those who oppose us may come to Christ... We know that ultimately the judge of all the earth will do right, and every wrong will be righted, and all will be well, and so we keep on keeping on. And so the thought that, that God is the judge, that, that we can leave all things to Him, ultimately that helps us to endure and to keep going. Endurance. And then lastly, godliness. Godliness. Because it also says, the confession there says, that the certainty of judgment should deter all men from sin. Now that's not just the unbelieving world. We live in a world now where many do not believe in any accountability or judgment, and and, and that is doing something to our world. But this is also for believers. Peter writes to Christians and he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, 2 Peter 3, this is, 2 Peter 3, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I don't know about you. As, you, as we read about standing before the throne as we read about our thoughts and words and deeds being weighed, forgiven though they are, didn't something in you say, there really needs to be a bigger seriousness in my life about the things of God? There needs to be an earnestness where there is complacency. There needs to be there needs to be a repentance where there is sin. There, there, there needs to be a living with the consciousness that, that a day is set. Didn't you think that? And feel that? Well, that's exactly right. Peter says, remember that and live holy and godly lives. God has set a day when he will judge the whole earth. And since that is the case, we ought to be those who are fleeing to Christ, trusting in him wholly. We ought to be those who are motivated to mission. We ought to be those who are able to endure because the judge of all the earth will do right. We ought to be those who are living holy and godly lives. Let's pray that God will help us Lord, even as we hear these words, as we read the words of this chapter, we, we again thank you for the intercession and the interruption of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has stood in our place. Oh, Lord, if not for him, what hope would we have? But thank you that he descended to hell for us. Thank you that our penalty has been paid. Our condemnation has been canceled. And there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to have an earnestness in all that we do.